The year was 1927, and an American philosophy professor by the name of J.H. Holmes took a tour around the world, spending significant time in the country of India. And while he was there, he had opportunity to interact with one of India's foremost and most influential political and religious leaders, a, a man by the name of Mahatma Gandhi. You've probably heard of him. And Gandhi, who was Hindu but well-read in many other faith traditions, said this to Dr. Holmes. I believe in the teachings of Christ, but you on the other side of the world do not. I read the Bible faithfully, and I see little in Christendom that those who profess faith pretend to see. The Christians, above all others, are seeking after wealth. Their aim is to be rich at the expense of their neighbors. They come alongside aliens to exploit them for their own good and to cheat them to do so. Their prosperity is far more essential to them than the life, liberty, and happiness of others. And then he said this, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Ouch. My friends, the greatest threat to Christianity is not out there somewhere. It's in here. The greatest danger that we face is not persecution from without, it's hypocrisy from within. Our greatest liability is people who claim the name of Christ, but who look and act nothing like him. Well, good morning. Glad you came to church today. <laughs> My name is Mark. I serve as one of the pastors here, and it's a pleasure to, to be here with you on a holiday weekend. Thank you for coming. Uh, we're a little thin today in the front. This is like the, the spit zone is empty today. But uh, we just finished, those of you who've been around know, we just finished the book of 1 Peter a few weeks ago. And uh, we, we gave that sermon series uh, through the book of 1 Peter the subtitle, Faithful Living in a Foreign World. And today's a significant day because we're going to launch into a new sermon series through the second book that Peter wrote. You know, in his first book, Peter spent significant time warning us of dangers outside the church and how to endure and live faithfully as a Christian in the midst of hostility from culture, outside culture, in the midst of suffering and persecution. How, how do we live faithfully as believers, faithful living in a foreign world? When his second epistle, Peter's focus changes. No longer is he warning us of dangers from without. His major theme is dangers from within, and addressing the issue of quote-unquote Christians who look and act nothing like Christ. And so since First Peter's subtitle is Faithful Living in a Foreign World, we've given the Second Peter the subtitle Holy Living in a Hypocritical World. Now we know from church history that Peter wrote this second letter right before he was crucified upside down by the Roman emperor Nero. And while he's writing, Peter evidently knows that his time is short because he says so here in this book. In, in chapter, we don't cover it this week, we'll get to it next week, but in chapter 1, verse 14, he alludes to the fact of his impending death. He knows he's about to die. And so this book, 2 Peter, contains some of the apostle Peter's la very last words. And like we, I pointed out last week, last words are important words. When you know you're going to die, you choose your words very, very carefully. 
And with his last words, Peter chooses to warn his original audience and to warn us by proxy that the greatest danger that we face as Jesus followers is not persecution from without, but hypocrisy from within, particularly in the form of false teacher false teachers who's he's, who he's really going to lambast in chapter 2. We'll get, get there in a couple of weeks. You know, when it comes to hypocrisy within the church, not much has changed from Peter's day in the first century. A few years back, Barner Research Group polled um, a group of non-believing young adults, non, non-church attending young adults, on their perception of Christians and Christianity. The survey asked, when you hear the term Christian, what do you think of? 80, in the, the people responded, of the people who responded, 87% in their answer used the word judgmental. Not far behind it, 85% in their answer used the word hypocritical. Among the new generation, we Christians are most known for being judgmental hypocrites. We're considered fake rather than faithful. And I would suggest to you, my friends, that we have more than just an image problem. Perhaps we deserve the label. Perhaps there's a profound lack of genuine faith in the American church. Because if we're known more for being judgmental hypocrites than being loving servants, then we're following something, but it isn't Jesus. And to use Peter's words that we will read here in a bit, we become ineffective and unfruitful in our knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, one of my greatest prayers as your pastor is that we here at Fellowship Nashville form a community of genuine faith, a community that becomes known for our love. Holding on to truth, but known for our love. A community of genuine faith that attracts people to our Jesus rather than giving them yet another excuse to reject him. So how do we avoid hypocrisy and build a genuine faith? Well, I'm glad you asked, because Peter is going to tell us. He's going to jump into that here at the beginning of his book. So take your Bible or the Bible app that you can find on your mobile device and navigate to 2 Peter chapter 1. You can also follow along on the screen behind me. And if you're able, would you please stand with me as we read from Scripture this morning? 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have attained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness can't talk with goodness, and goodness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they'll keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten he is cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be 
there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Pray with me. Father, as we look into your words this morning, given through the Apostle Peter, Lord, open our hearts to hear what your Spirit has to say to your church. Open our hearts for um, conviction, for comfort, for a movement towards Christ-likeness. In whose name we pray, amen. You may be seated. You know, before boldly confronting hypocritical faith of false teachers in in chapter 2, here at the beginning of his epistle, Paul, not Paul, Peter, (laughs) points out four characteristics of genuine faith. So if you're taking notes this morning, you can write that title at the top of your outline, four characteristics of genuine faith. And as we go through the text verse by verse, I want to point out each of these characteristics along the way. But before I do, I want to give you a way of remembering them. Not many of you know this, but I got my start in ministry um, doing children's ministry. For three summers in college, I traveled on a puppet team. We did Muppet-style puppets. I know this sounds weird. Yep, it's just bear with me. Um, it, was the, it was the early 90s. Um, we traveled around doing um, uh, puppet shows with Muppet-style puppets at and vacation Bible schools. Church, we traveled from church to church to church. We did a tour of the Midwest, of the Northeast, even Alaska. And... And that was how I spent my summers in college, teaching kids about the Bible through puppets. Well, one of the things I learned, maybe I should switch things up and preach with a puppet some, some Sunday. Actually, that's probably a bad idea. But back to where I was going with this. Um, in children's ministry, I learned that adding hand motions to something, oftentimes to a song or to a lesson, oftentimes increases the reception of it as far as kids remembering it. Okay? Guess what? Adults aren't that much different. We're just grown kids. So, I've come up with some hand motions for today's sermon. Four hand motions that go along with the four aspects of genuine faith that Peter will teach us about this morning. Here they are. God works for us. God works in us. God works with us. God works through us. Try those with me. Okay. God works for us. God works in us. God works with us. And God works us. Another thing I learned is that repetition is the key to learning. So say these out loud with me as we do them one more time. God works for us, God works in us, God works with us, and God works through us. Good. One more time. God works for us, God works in us, God works with us, God works through us. Okay. Remember those. We're going to come back to There will be a pop quiz, okay? Let's dive in by rereading verse 1. Simeon Peter, a servant of the apostle and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of, our Je- and of Jesus, our Lord. You know, Peter starts out his book by identifying himself. He calls himself Simeon Peter. Simeon is just the, a Greek variation of Peter's given name, Hebrew Simon. And Peter itself is a nickname that was given to him by Jesus. It's a nickname that means rock. So it's like Simon the Rock, okay? Um, and, And Jesus gave him that nickname because Jesus knew that he would become a very important leader, a foundation stone, if you will, in the early church. When Jesus gave him that nickname, Jesus looked at him and said, you are rock. You are Petros, Peter. You are rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. So Peter's a big deal. He's the foremost leader in the early church. 
But I want you to notice how he identifies himself here. What does he call himself next? He's a Simeon Peter, an apostle. No, he doesn't go there. What does he say? Simeon Peter, a servant. Before he goes and calls himself an apostle, he calls himself a servant. You know, in an early, earlier stage of his life, Peter was brash. Peter was ambitious. He was proud. I'll never deny you, Jesus. But now in his later years, God has worked humility into his heart, into his character. And he, he leads out with his epistle stating, I am just a servant of Jesus Christ. Then Peter goes on to say this, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, you see the humility in Peter's words here. He doesn't put himself and the rest of the apostles up on some faith pedestal, but points out that his original audience and us by extension are on equal standing with him and the apostles. To those of you who've received a faith as precious as ours, as the rest of the apostles, Keep in mind that Peter walked with Jesus on earth. Peter walked on water with Jesus on earth, albeit briefly. But he's telling us here that his faith isn't any greater or more special than the faith that's been given to us. You and I have obtained a faith of equal standing, he says right here at the beginning of his book. And the Greek word translated obtained here in the English Standard Version means to obtain by lot. In other words, this is something that falls on you. It conveys the idea of obtaining by receiving rather than obtaining by achieving or earning. And, and that's why I like the translation of the, the New International Version just a little bit better here than the ESV. It says this, To those who have received a faith as precious as ours through, right, through the righteousness of God, of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Both God and Savior refer to Jesus Christ. He is God. He is Savior. Jesus is our God. Jesus is our Savior. And we've received his righteousness. And right here is the main difference. Catch this. Right here is the main difference between Christianity and any religion in the world. Most religions in some form or fashion share the basic concept that God is holy and we are unholy. God is perfect and we're imperfect. God is without flaw and we have a lot of flaws, failures, and um, False. And various religions use different language around this, but as a general concept, most religions share all of these big ideas. And so the question becomes, how do we bridge this gap between us and a holy God? Every other religion teaches something called works, that you need to do, some, do something or do some things to climb the ladder of morality and spirituality and sort of earn your way into God's presence, earn your way into God's acceptance, earn your way into right relationship with him. You need to do something to be declared righteous or justified in right standing with God. That's works-based religion. But Christianity is not works-based. It's gift-based. God comes down, we don't go up. God does all the work, we don't earn our own righteousness. Peter makes it very clear that we receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ, our God and Savior. So who's got all the righteousness? Making sure you're listening. Who's got all the righteousness? Jesus Christ has the righteousness. 
He's righteous, we're unrighteous. He's holy, we're unholy. He's perfect, we're imperfect. He's reconciled to the Father. We are separated from the Father by sin. So if you want righteousness, you can't just muster it up on your own. You can't order it on Amazon. The only place that you can get righteousness is Jesus Christ. And we receive it as a gift. Our salvation is by grace, a free gift through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You know, think of it this way. Some people will say that we're saved by grace, not by works. Almost accurate. The truth is we're saved by works. The works just aren't ours. It's Jesus who does all the work. God becomes a man. God lives without sin. God dies in your place for your sins. God rises to take away your sin and conquer death. And then God not only gives you forgiveness, he gives you Jesus' righteousness. He does all the work. You receive all the benefits. Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, called this the great exchange. Jesus traded places with you. He paid your debt and gives you his righteousness. Now, now some people will say, well, that's just too easy. But when you think about it, it's actually very hard because it requires humility. It requires you to acknowledge, I am the problem here, not the solution. I am bad, not good. I am unrighteous, not righteous. I have an issue that's God-sized, and I can't solve it on my own, and I desperately need Jesus. And so here is the first characteristic of genuine faith that Peter gives to us. Genuine faith is received. Say that with me. Genuine faith is received. It's a 100% gift. Now, what would the hand motion be that goes with this first point? Pop quiz. Let me see it. Okay, everybody. God works for us. Genuine faith is something we received. We're not the one doing the work. God works for us. Jesus died in our place on our behalf instead of us. It's his work. Our righteousness, our justification being declared righteous before God is God's work and God's work alone. God works, one more time, for us. Okay, verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Okay, there's a lot going on in these verses. One, it's really bad grammar because it's a super long run-on sentence. Thank you, Peter. But secondly, I want, to, want you to observe a couple things closely. The word granted is used twice in these verses, indicating that God has given us two essential things. The first is his power, which provides us with everything we need for life and godliness. The second is his promises, which allow us, as Peter says, to be partakers in the divine nature. We'll talk about that, what, what that means in a second. And what we need to understand here is that Peter is likely making reference in both of these things, talking about God's power and God's promise, he's most likely referencing the person of the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. I don't have time to explain the Trinity this morning, but... Someday we'll come back to that. We covered it a little bit when we, when we went through the Gospel of John. So if you want to go on our website and look at it there, you can. But the indwelling Holy Spirit in the life of the believer is the enabling power source of living a life of godliness or God-likeness, accurately reflecting his character instead of being a hypocrite. 
And so the Holy Spirit is power, okay? Indwelling power from God. Not only is the Holy Spirit power, but he was promised in the Old Testament. Over and over again throughout the Old Testament are promises that point forward to the coming Holy Spirit. You see the Holy Spirit come on people and then leave people in the Old Testament. It's kind of a come and go thing. But there's this promise that the the Holy Spirit's going to come and stay on people. One of those places you see that is in Joel. Joel chapter 2 where it says this, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all people. It just came upon specific people at specific times for specific purposes in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit. But God is promising it's going to be poured out on all people, all people who believe in Jesus. And Peter is saying here that we become partakers of the divine nature by participating in this. And he's not saying we become divine ourselves, but we can share in God's divine nature because the Holy Spirit now indwells us, works in us, changes our motivations from the inside out, and enables us to say no to ungodliness and yes to God-likeness. Saying yes to God-likeness is how we partake in the divine nature because we become like God, not in the sense that we become divine, but we reflect him more accurately. And by doing so, we escape the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire, as Peter puts it here. You know, a Christian without the Holy Spirit would be like a car without an engine. It might look like a car, but it really isn't a car. It can't carry you anywhere, okay? That's where we get the word car is the same root, okay? Carriage, carry, horseless carriage got shortened to car. Anyway, um, a car without an engine has no power in it, and therefore it's not a genuine car. In reality, there's no such thing as a genuine Christian without the, holy, the indwelling Holy Spirit, And so here's the second characteristic of genuine faith that Peter gives to us. First of all, genuine faith is received. It's a 100% gift. Secondly, genuine faith is, say it out loud with me, enabled, enabled by the indwelling Holy Spirit. Okay, hand motions. Genuine faith is received. God works for us. Genuine faith is enabled. God works in us through the indwelling Holy Spirit. Now, it'd be easy to stop here and begin to think, you know, to have genuine faith means I don't have to do anything. You know, God does all the work. I can just sit here and go, let go and let God, and all will be well. Well, that would be a mistake. That would be faulty thinking, which is why Peter says what he says beginning in verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. God works for you and God works in you, but that doesn't mean that you don't have any work to do. This is why the Apostle Paul exhorts us in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, to continue to work out your salvation. He means sanctification when he talks about salvation there. For it is God who works in you to will and act according to his good purpose. Continue to work out your salvation because God works in you. Okay, quick theology lesson time out here. Um, I want to define some terms. You know, the Bible talks about our salvation. When it does, it 
it talks about three different realities. And, and the context helps you determine what reality it's referring to. Sometimes it's talking about our justification. I already used that big word earlier. That's being declared righteous by God. So sometimes when the Bible uses the word salvation, it's talking about our justification that happens at a point in time when you put your faith in Jesus, abandon faith in anything else, and say, I need Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And at that moment, the great exchange happens, and you are justified, declared righteous before God. Your sins are no longer counted against you. You're welcomed into the family of God. Justification. Say that out loud with me. Justification. You're declared righteous. You receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Another thing that, that um, Scripture refers to when it talks about salvation is something called sanctification. Justification happens at a point in time. Sanctification is an ongoing process. If justification is salvation from sin's power, sanctification is salvation from... I'm sorry. If justification is salvation from sin's penalty, sanctification is salvation from sin's power in your life. And this is a progressive thing. It's a, a progress in becoming God-like in our character, taking on the attributes and the posture of Jesus, God sizzling off the rough edges of our hearts and, and molding us to look more like his son, Jesus Christ. That's sanctification. That's not a point in time. It's a process. It's a process that we'll be going through for the rest of our lives until we get to the third aspect of our salvation, which is sometimes called glorification. Say that out loud with me. Glorification. When does that happen? Yeah. Either when we die or Jesus comes back and we receive resurrected bodies that are glorified like Jesus' resurrected body. Justification, salvation from sin's penalty. Sanctification, salvation from sin's power. Glorification, salvation from sin's presence altogether. And so when, when the Bible talks about salvation, it's talking about usually one of those three things, or sometimes it all wrapped up in one. And what Paul was talking about when he says, continue to work out your salvation, what is he talking about? Justification, sanctification, or glorification? Sanctification. Continue to work out your sanctification, that process of becoming like Christ. Our justification, who does all the work there? God. God works for you, remember? Our sanctification is salvation from sin's power in our lives. So who does all the work in our sanctification? God or us? That's a trick question. Both Paul's answer and Peter's answer would be yes. Yes. It's a both and, not an either or. We cooperate with God in our sanctification by adding faith to our faith virtue which is goodness or moral excellence, adding to our virtue, knowledge, knowing what God wants for us and from us, adding to our knowledge, self-control, saying no to temptation, adding to our self-control, steadfastness, that's a patience and enduring under the trials of life, adding to our steadfastness, godliness, God-like character, adding to our godliness, brotherly affection, that's the Greek word Philadelphia, brotherly love for each other, adding to our brotherly affection, love, the Greek word agape, Self-giving, self-sacrificial, unconditional love for others. Agape, the crown jewel of Christian virtue. Love is the glue that holds all these other things together in this list that Peter gives. And it's interesting to note here that this list is not all that dissimilar to Paul's list in Galatians where he's talking about the fruit of the Spirit, the evidence of the Spirit in someone's life, that indwelling Holy Spirit that gives us the power to be God-like in our character. This list is not very 
different than that list, which means that, yes, we are to cultivate them and strive for them, but it's only attainable in and through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. Now, picture your salvation this way. And every analogy breaks down, so don't, don't take this too far. But picture God rowing a boat across the lake, okay? <laughs> and he looks down, and he sees you face down on the bottom, dead, okay? He reaches down, picks you up, brings you into the boat, does CPR, and miraculously brings you back to life. What aspect of salvation is that? Your justification. But then... He hands you an oar, (laughs) and you paddle with him to reach the shore of glorification. The process of rowing to shore is your sanctification. And so here is the third characteristic of genuine faith that Peter gives to us. First of all, genuine faith is received. God works for us. Secondly, genuine faith is enabled. God works in us. Thirdly, genuine faith is active. God works with us. You guys aren't doing the hand motions. I'm going to make you do it over again. Okay, God works for us. God works in us. God works with us. Genuine faith is active. Just like James says in his epistle in James chapter 2, 14 through 18, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? Faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Faith without deeds is useless. Say this out loud with me. Our salvation is not by our works, but it is a salvation that works. Now that it's up on the screen, say it out loud with me. Our salvation is not by our works, but it is a salvation that works. One more time with the hand motions. God works for us. God works in us. God works with us. Genuine faith is active faith. And now for the last one, God works through us. Verse 8. For in these qualities, or if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Increasing in these virtues, which culminate in love, result, Peter is saying here, in effectiveness and fruitfulness in our knowledge of Jesus Christ. Well, what does Peter mean by this? Well, he means that if you're growing in these virtues, your knowledge of God won't be like the Pharisees that we read about in the pages of Scripture. In the Gospels. Who were the Pharisees? The Pharisees knew the most about God. They knew that they had their Old Testaments memorized, but they were still what? Judgmental hypocrites. Increasing in these virtues will result in a life characterized by the crown, crown jewel of virtues, love. A life characterized by love will be attractive to others. And being attractive to others will result in an opportunity to introduce people, those people that are being attracted, to Jesus, who's the source of that love. And when people are attracted to the source of that love, we may have the opportunity to see some of them move from unbelief to belief and put their faith in Jesus. My friends, faithfulness is the basis of fruitfulness. 
working with God in our sanctification results in God working through us to draw others to himself. Which brings us to the fourth aspect or fourth characteristic of genuine faith that Peter gives us. First of all, genuine faith is received. God works for us. Everybody, okay? Genuine faith is enabled. God works in us. Thirdly, genuine faith is active. God works with us. And finally, genuine faith is reproductive. God works through us. After all, when you think about fruit, what is it for? It's for reproduction, for making new life. If you aren't active or bearing fruit with your faith, the question has to be asked, is it genuine faith? Is it genuine faith? Which is how Peter closes his passage in verse 9. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. What does he mean by never fall? Well, you'll never be ineffective. You'll never be unproductive. You'll never be unfruitful. You'll never be labeled as a judgmental hypocrite. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Having an active and reproducing faith isn't what saves you. Remember, God works for you in your justification. But although it's not a salvation by our works, it's a salvation that works. Increasing in these virtues and being used by God to draw others to himself confirms that you are actually a Christian. It confirms genuine saving faith. In other words, you can recognize a tree by its fruit. If it's an apple tree, what grows on it? And what do those apples produce? Other apple trees. If it's an orange tree, what grows on it? Oranges. And what do those oranges, if they get planted in the ground, do? They produce more orange trees. A genuine Christian produces the attractive fruit of Christian love, Christ-like virtue, that goes on to produce more genuine Jesus-following Christians. I mentioned earlier that one of my greatest prayers as your pastor is that we would together here at Fellowship Nashville form a community of genuine faith that's most known for our love. A community of genuine faith that attracts people to Jesus rather than giving them an excuse, yet another excuse to reject him. My friends, the greatest threat to Christianity isn't out there somewhere. It's sitting in this room. It's right here. The greatest danger we face is not persecution from without, it's hypocrisy from within. And our greatest liability is people who claim to be Christian, but look and act and speak nothing like Christ. So how how do we begin working with God? Cooperating with him in our sanctification to add to our faith, virtue, Add to our virtue, knowledge, knowledge, self-control, self-control, steadfastness, steadfastness, godliness, godliness, brotherly affection, and brotherly affection, love. Well, when it comes to spiritual growth, as I land the plane here, I want you to hear this. When it comes to spiritual growth, others can't do it for you, but you can't do it alone. Say that with me. When it comes to your spiritual growth, others can't do it for you, 
but you can't do it alone. As the worship team makes their way back to stage, I want to challenge you and encourage you by way of application of this passage. How do we cooperate with God in our sanctification? I mean, God does everything else, but there's a little part that we play in our sanctification. How do we do that? It's best done in community. College students. One of the, I know I'm preaching to the choir here because I'm going to tell you, get involved in a local church, and you're here, and that's great. But plug in. Plug in. Get to be known. One of the best ways to do that is to serve. Also, take advantage of, of our collegiate ministry in partnership with Navigators. That's, there's other great collegiate ministries out there. Um, you know, RUF, and I don't know if InterVarsity operates here, but Navigators is, is one of the best um, collegiate ministry. Plug in with a nav night at Vanderbilt on Wednesday nights. Belmont, Lipscomb, Vandy students. Come to our men's events and women's events. We'd love to get to know you. Young professionals. There's a group that meets on Tuesday evenings, the first Tuesday of every month. One's coming up this week, uh, where we gather in community with young professionals all around the city, and we talk about how to be equipped to, on this mission of God working through us. You can find information about that on our website. If you're not involved in a city group, I want to encourage you to sign up. Those are starting up soon, as Bobby mentioned. When it comes to spiritual growth, others can't do it for you, but you can't do it alone. We need the body of Christ to speak the truth of the gospel into our hearts where we're still failing to believe it in many areas. I have those areas even in my heart as a pastor, and I need you to speak truth to me regularly. We need to be in community. When it comes to spiritual growth, others can't do it for you, but you can't do it alone. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you work for us. You work in us, you work with us, and you work through us for the goal of bringing the pinnacle of your creation, men, women, boys, and girls, back into knowledge of you and relationship with you, restored relationship with you. Lord, help us to be about the great adventure of your redemptive mission. Father, help us be an accurate reflection of the Jesus that we say we believe in. Amen.